Hello and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenball. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. Now, don't forget, if you want to get in contact with us here at the show, you can email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us, as an awful lot of people have done, at immunotea. Don't forget, that's T-E-A. Now, I'd like to get started and introduce our guest for this episode, Professor Jason Trubiano. He obtained his bachelor's degree in biomedical science in 2002, before going on to complete his medical degree in 2007 in Melbourne University. He continued his studies and in 2018 was awarded his PhD for examining the impact of antibiotic allergy testing on antimicrobial stewardship. Jason is an infectious diseases physician and NHMRC early career researcher at the University of Melbourne Department of Medicine. In addition, he's also the laboratory head for the Centre for Antibiotic Allergy and Research. His research explores health services programs for antibiotic allergy and novel diagnostic predictors for severe T-cell mediated reactions. Jason, you are very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So we're going to start very broad on this topic as it's something that many listeners might want a bit of a refresher on, if that's okay. Let's start with what is allergy and, and should we expect that all allergy will lead to anaphylaxis? Yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? It's such a small word for such a big spectrum of clinical presentations. And so I think allergy can be described or hypersensitivity is anything from an intolerance that people have, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. It's not a true allergy, does not lead to anaphylaxis. To the milder allergies like childhood rash or a rash you might have had 10 years ago, which might have been from the immune system, both from an IgE or an antibody or a T-cell from the T-cells perspective, all the way through to the severe reactions like severe cutaneous adverse reactions. People have heard of things like Stephen Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, and then anaphylaxis, which is an IgE mediated. So there's this huge spectrum. The problem is the vast majority don't sit at the end of that spectrum with scar and anaphylaxis, and most of them uh, fit with the earlier spectrum that are either not true allergy or allergy that probably isn't persistent into adulthood or much after childhood. And that's why we're here. We're trying to get rid of the allergies that we don't think persist and make sure we record and retain the severe allergies that we think do. So if we consider drug allergies specifically, what cohort of people might be, say, most at risk of drug allergies? Do they group together with things like ATP and food allergy? That's a good question, actually. And we haven't found a clear link between atopy uh, for drug allergy. There are a group of people that seem to like to collect them, multiple drug hypersensitivity syndrome. But I think the vast majority of people that have a single or an individual allergy in the most part, and it's probably about use, you know, who uses antibiotics more in particular, they make up 50% of all drug allergy. They're the ones more likely to go and have an adverse event. There are a group that their genetics or their HLA will predict their drug allergy. But again, we're talking rare events and are parts of uh, specific populations. 
So we don't have the same atopy link like food allergy or allergic rhinitis. That's really interesting. So we know that less than 5% of patients labelled with penicillin allergy are truly allergic, which seems crazy. But can we talk firstly about how patients erroneously end up with this label and some of the misinformation that's out there in the public and amongst doctors? Yes, so true. We have our mothers to blame or fathers or family members for labelling us allergic to penicillin or other as kids. And there's two reasons. I can't swear on this podcast, can I? No, I won't. There are two reasons why you are not likely to be allergic if you carry something in childhood. One is you're never allergic in the first place. And that's because a viral presentation was the cause of your rash or allergic reaction. And we know this beautiful interactions between viruses and antibiotic, but also viruses alone. And the second one is that it was never allergy in the first place. Mum said I was allergic because my brother was, or my dad was, or I had nausea and vomiting and therefore they labelled me allergic, or mum didn't like me to get antibiotics, so she said I was allergic, so I wouldn't get them. And the second bit is, well, let's say there was a true one, that you outgrow that. These are not persistent, for whatever reason that may be, loss of immune memory over time. And we know that 50% of people after five years and 80% of people after 10 years will lose their drug allergy. And in particular, most of the data is for penicillin allergy. But we've shown the same data for cephalosporin allergy and also for sulfonamide allergy. And that allows us to be able to delabel or remove the allergy of more than 95%. A, they were never allergic in the first place, or two, they've lost it after time. And that's how we get to this point in time and why delabeling is on the menu for allergy, immunologists, infectious disease physicians, internal medicine, whatever it may be. I can't believe those stats, especially about people actually losing their allergy. But I wonder, does it matter if people have a false label of penicillin allergy? I mean, are there consequences to the patients or to society? It's a set up question. This one has to be because it's a huge consequence. <laughs> um, you know, well, we've built a career on this. Kim Blumenthal will be very upset with you. So I think what we know is that if you carry that penicillin allergy into a hospital, you are more likely to get the wrong antibiotic, an inferior antibiotic, an inappropriate antibiotic, have a surgical site infection, go to ICU, uh, be readmitted and die in the community. And these are association level data and some from big data sets in the UK, in the US and Australia. So this penicillin allergy, this red armband is the most dangerous thing you can carry into the hospital. And it's a public health nightmare. It's a public health crisis. And so lots of the work are trying to intervene and break that cycle, right? Remove the allergy. And what we haven't seen yet, but I'm sure we will, is once we break that cycle, do we then see an impact on all those health outcomes? We've clearly shown if you break the cycle, you get better antibiotics, you get appropriate antibiotics. But what we want to see is, well, do you improve outcomes? Do they not die? Do they go to ICU less? Do they get readmitted less? That data will be exciting and I'm sure it will come. So obviously one of your key interests is delabeling people with these false penicillin allergies. If we wanted to go back a little bit and talk about the traditional ways that we delabeled, could you talk to me a little bit about this, maybe something 10, 15 years ago, what a patient could expect when they came to you? Old school approach. So the traditional approach has always been skin or scratch testing. And there are beautiful papers from the 60s, 70s. In fact, I looked historically back at the first penicillin allergy testing done in the 40s, and it is almost identical to the skin testing method done in 2000. Like, it's unbelievable. 
The traditional method is skin prick, highest concentration, drop on the skin prick. If negative, proceed to intradermal testing, which is a small 0.02 to 0.05 mils under the skin at a non-irritating concentration. Most of these concentrations are pulled from the atmosphere, but there is some data about the non-irritating. And then if negative, proceed to oral challenge. Irrespective, the end game, the gold standard must be an oral challenge to prove or disprove an allergy. In drug allergy, this is, of course. So the shift has been, this is too much. You know, you've got 10% of the population burdened with penicillin allergy alone. Skin testing reagents are inaccessible or expensive. How do we bring this into mainstream and make it more accessible? And so in vogue, the traditional is now hopefully going. And what we're seeing is people move to direct oral challenge. And you might hear that called oral provocation or test dose. And that's giving a low dose oral of the drug immediately to those people we consider low risk. This can't be done in the person you think has genuine anaphylaxis or scar, but in the vast majority low risk, this is what's now the modern approach. But the traditional has always been that skin testing approach. Well, you've brought it up, so let's have a little chat because back in 2020, yourself and your team published an extremely exciting paper looking at the development and validation of a penicillin allergy clinical decision rule. So can you talk to us about this research and the PenFast tool and, and how we might use it as clinicians? Yeah, we love PenFast. Uh, PenFast was born in Melbourne, but it really had the help around the globe. And what we did is we took a cohort of patients I did for my uh, PhD um, that aged me more than the five years in the PenFast tool. And we took those patients uh, and we looked at predictors of having a positive test, be that skin test or oral challenge. Uh, And we came up with a criterion, which I'll talk about in a minute, and we validated that in a cohort from Elizabeth Phillips in Vanderbilt and some friends in um, New South Wales and Western Australia and Australia. And so what that tool or PenFast is, it's made of really three clinical uh, factors. And the first one is time from event. F for five years or less since reaction, and you get two points. The second is about the phenotype, A, anaphylaxis or angioedema, or S, scar. We've defined that earlier, two points. And then you get an additional point for treatment or if the treatment is unknown. Total of five, most people don't have a five. Most people have a less than three. And if you had less than three, there was a 96% chance that you didn't have a true allergy or negative predicted value of 96%. And so this tool has really changed the way in which we can point of care risk assess people with a penicillin allergy. And it's been amazing and exciting to see the uptake around that around the globe. And the interest in PenFast, we never expected that. You've explained what the PenFast tool is and how to use it. But in a real world environment, how does a clinician use the PenFast score? And who should be doing this? Approximately how many patients fall into the low-risk category? Oh, heaps. At least 50% will have a low-risk phenotype. We know this because we went and painstakingly interviewed every single patient that was admitted to our hospital Monday to Friday, and we found that 50%, more than 50%, carried a low risk. And so the vast majority will fit into this PenFast less than three and would be amenable. So we've eliminated traditional skin testing in the vast majority. And you've mentioned it yourself. Clearly, you don't rest on your laurels at all. You've just published the PALACE study. Can you talk to us about this research? And and do you expect that it will profoundly change clinical practice? We hope so. We hope this is the game changer in penicillin allergy, to be perfectly honest. You know, 
before this time, there was only one other randomized trial done in penicillin allergy, despite, you know, amazing people doing it for 50 years. And so this is the first international multi-center randomized control trial. And it clearly showed that on day one in the clinic, there was a 1% reaction rate in the traditional old school arm, we'll call it old school from now on, versus the oral challenge arm. And then even if you went out to five days and looked at adverse events, 95% were negative in both arms. So clearly it's not inferior in a selected population to use PenFast and do a direct oral challenge. And this was an outpatient setting. So we're talking about well patients and we might talk about some evidence gaps moving forward. But I think in the vast majority then, PenFast is the way to go or a low risk criterion that you have that you're comfortable with to do an oral challenge. I guess I wanted to say some caveats, though. It's not for the little kids. You know, we, we tried, and I, I like doing studies where you try and publish a negative study. We said PenFast doesn't work in kids. You know, it doesn't work. Uh, and it's not yet done in the ICU patient uh, or the emergency department patient that's critically ill. That's another study. But the vast majority, it would be fine. You recently published an article about successfully applying the PenFast criteria to trimethoprim sulfmethoxazole allergy. Do you envision this tool being adaptable to most other drugs? We hope so. Well, if not it in its entirety, a derivation or simplification of it. What we want is a point of care clinical decision rule we can use for the most common drug allergies. You know, it's penicillin far and away the most common. Cephalosporins, or if you're listening from North America, cephalosporins, number two, and then sulfonamides, number three. And so particularly for an ID doc, you know, immunocompromised patients, if you can't take a sulfonamide, it's a real problem. And so Sulfast has got real potential. The negative predicted value was similar to what we saw in PenFast. And so we're now going to do the same method and take Sulfast to a randomized control trial. So look out for the bracelet study starting very soon. You've heard it here first, but uh, I think we can definitely apply it to more. And, you know, hopefully... Cephalosporins is the next. We need a, a way in which we can do that. The most commonly used surgical prophylaxis drug. So yeah, we want to be able to use it. Do you think that there's certain cohorts of patients for whom it's particularly important to interrogate their allergy history? So for instance, immunocompromised populations or people who will require a lot of antibiotics? Definitely. Uh, so much so we wrote it as a statement in a paper that it should be the standard of care. And I think if you are a high user of antibiotics, then you really need to remove their penicillin allergy. It's a, a medical injustice not to remove it and leave it there. So I think a transplant patient, bone marrow transplant, chronic respiratory patient, these are. The other thing is they're also great targets because what we did is we looked at our inpatient cohort and said, okay, who benefits the most? Who can we predict will actually go on to use a penicillin and proceed from assessment to oral challenge? And it was the same group, surgical patients, high antibiotic usage populations and immunocompromised. They are all people that use the penicillin after delabeling and all people that were actually consented and want to be challenged in the inpatient setting. So that's the groups that we definitely target. They're the focus. We try and embed programs in those groups, both in an inpatient and also an ambulatory setting. Now, I know at the start we discussed about how, how your mom is probably at fault for your, for your false penicillin allergy. Poor mom. Poor mom. Mom or dad, actually. Let's not blame yeah, just mom. That's, yeah, but- that's true. As you know, obviously, a huge amount of referrals that come to our centre anyway, and presumably yours, come from 
maybe misguided doctors and doctors who have labeled their patients as penicillin allergic and have not. I'm just wondering, where do we stop this? Do we need to go back to college when we're educating people to begin with? I mean, it's, a, it's an endemic problem and doctors are to blame a lot. Yeah, yeah, we are, aren't we? Um, it's not our fault. Well, we were taught wrong, but we need to go back. So there's probably two facts. We could have like a one slide presentation that's mandatory in all medical schools. And that is that penicillin cross-reactivity is not 10%. That's the first one. And the second one is that penicillin allergy is not forever. And I think if we were able to reteach those two things, it would be a paradigm shift because then doctors would be saying, oh, actually, yeah, not forever. Maybe we'll refer you for that testing. Because at the moment, the barrier is, oh, no, you're allergic. You can't take that. And the other one is, oh, by the way, you're not allergic. You can't have any penicillin in the class. So here's saproxen and here's nephroxin and here's meropenem. You know, this is what happens. Do you know what? That's actually really fascinating because it's something that is prevalent in medicine. Can you just discuss a little bit about this myth of the 10% cross-reactivity with cephalosporins and penicillin and how that's not true? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the first things we need to undo, isn't it? Because even if you can't challenge them, you don't have the facilities, if somebody that's low risk, you can definitely give a cephalosporin. So the first bit is it was born out of contamination of the penicillin manufacturing plants and the cephalosporin manufacturing plants. So penicillin was put into cephalosporins. And so you immediately got cross-reactivity because there was penicillin within the product. The second bit was that they looked at cross-reactivity studies. They lumped everything together, junk together. So even adverse reactions to not allergy, nausea, vomiting, were lumped into a lot of these studies. So you had an elevated cross-reactivity rate because people were reporting adverse events, not allergy. And then the third was they were giving drugs to people that were cross-reactivity based upon this R1 or this side chain. So, you know, if you give amoxicillin to somebody with cephalex and anaphylaxis in a good story, there's a 33% chance there's cross-reactivity, and that's from our own data and other. So if you lump that together, up goes the figure. So remove all the junk, and you look at some nice meta-analyses, it's 1% for penicillin and cephalosporins. Uh, so it's very, very low. So there's no excuse for us not to give a cephalosporin when it has a survival advantage. If I'm a patient in a bed, and my mum says I'm penicillin allergic, and you go and give me vancomycin for staph aureus bacteremia, or a staph infection where I could have had cefazolam or kefazolam or a penicillin. I'd be very upset. Justifiably, I think. As well. Very upset. <laughs> now, you don't work only on antibiotics. As we know, you've also done research on vaccination allergy, looking at the COVID-19 vaccine. Can you talk to us about some of the work and the outcomes of this study? Because obviously there's a huge amount of misinformation around vaccine allergy and problems with vaccines. And maybe you can put some of that to bed. Yeah, I'm having PTSD now. I thought we're not supposed to mention the C word. Uh, but um, so COVID vaccination obviously was an intense time, wasn't it? It was an intense period and there was a lot of overlays in terms of vaccination and mandatory vaccination. But if we put all that aside and we look at those that had a pre-existing vaccine allergy, for example, as the first thing, and you challenge them with a COVID vaccine, there really was no adverse event. I think that's the first thing that needs to be put to bed. And that data data showed that. The second thing was this idea of PEG allergy, if you were allergic to some of the constituents of the vaccine uh, that are really commonly in a lot of other vaccines and medicines we've people didn't realise when we tell them, you've already tolerated 13 different other drugs that have that constituent. And we went to a lot of trouble of testing all that PEG and other allergies, and there's no, we couldn't reproduce that in a single patient. And so that is also a myth that needs to go. 
And then the third is if you had an adverse event to your first COVID vaccine and we rechallenged you in a supervised environment, you know, the same sort of numbers we're talking with penicillin allergy were able to ch- tolerate that vaccine. And that was a huge game changer. So if you have had an adverse reaction, it is very likely you will tolerate very well um, some of the other vaccines. And what it did show, it put a spotlight on how amazing allergists and immunologists are and a lot of the work we didn't recognise. And we found things like who knew chronic spontaneous urticaria was such a thing and that vaccines could trigger it. Who knew a lot of people had laryngeal dysfunction? That was a cause for a lot of their reactions. And so not only did ID come to the forefront during the COVID pandemic, allergists, immunologists had their time in the limelight too. So definitely COVID vaccination should be put to bed as well. If I had a dollar for every CSU that was referred our way as a, as a penicillin allergy or a vaccine yeah. allergy, I would be a rich woman, I'll tell you that. You'd be very rich, right? <laughs> Can we just talk a tiny bit about the concept of desensitization? So somebody who yeah. does have a penicillin allergy, but we need to give them the drug. What, what is that? Tell us how that might happen. I think desensitization is dead because why do you need it now if you can challenge a patient? If you're removing the vast majority, desensitization is dead. But let's say we need it. Let's say we've got a true skin test positive penicillin allergy that has endocarditis with streptococcus or enterococcus and you want to use the penicillin. There you go. There's your unicorn. If we want to treat that unicorn, then desensitization is extremely safe. Oral desensitization protocols, 15-minute step marks, um, extremely safe, tolerate the drug. Important caveats. Once the drug stops, more than five half-lives after the drug, the patient returns to their baseline state. It's really important that these patients are not delabeled. They have a temporary immune trickery where they're able to tolerate the drug. And it doesn't apply to other drugs. It applies to the drug in which you desensitized. But can be done safely, doesn't need ICU, doesn't need a lot of precautions around that actually The bit we don't know is the delayed rash. I think we see a lot of desensitization for delayed rashes. And in effect, what we're doing is just safely challenging the patient. We don't understand the mechanism, how we're able to induce tolerance in what might be a T-cell or delayed reaction. But there is some data in particular for sulfonamides, and particularly in the HIV and other setting where it's still got a place. But the other caveat in delayed, you never do it in SCAR. Stephen Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, dress, these are not a place for desensitization. So since you've brought it up, why don't we move away somewhat from IgE-mediated allergies? Can you discuss severe cutaneous adverse reactions? What causes them and what clinical syndromes comprise this group? I have four children, sorry, as a byproduct. I have a daughter, Cara, she's 12, a son, Lucas, who's eight, and then I have scar and penicillin allergy. And so I can't work out which one I love more but um, SCAR is certainly up there. So sorry, I, I've, I didn't forget the question a little bit, but severe cutaneous adverse reactions we're talking about now, right? And so the big four are SGS, TN, DRESS, and ADGEP. And probably even I would say as early as 10 years ago, we didn't do much with them in terms of skin testing. I mean, the Europeans have led the way for a long time in terms of trying to skin test for SCAR, but certainly there's been a lot of movement towards trying to address it. The problem is... A patient has SCAR and they're really left with no available options within drug class or outside it. There's no available diagnostics. What do you do with these people in terms of drug recommendations afterwards? So a lot of the work we're doing obviously now is to try and find a predictor or a HLA. 
and fact, dress was one of those ones we did. And the other one is trying to develop skin testing and saying, well, this is safe. We can, in an appropriate setting, do skin testing for SCAR and then provide some recommendations about that. Jason, we might have touched on this, but what are some of the biggest pieces of information that you want clinicians and patients in general just to know about drug allergies? So what are the myths that you want busted? Oh, the myths. You know, I wrote a list of myths once, but a lot of these myths end up being true. So I think the first one, let's, okay, I'll, I'll make them up on the spot. One is penicillin allergies, not forever. That's myth number one. We've talked about that. It can be lost. Two, cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins is BS and 10% rule isn't true. Three, direct oral challenge is safe. And in a low-risk patient, skin testing is not required. Four, scar is bad. And despite us doing a lot of work with low risk, we have to still respect SCAR. And in those patients, extra cautions required about prescribing and testing. And five, I don't have a five. Do you have a five? I don't know. Five. I don't know. My five is I just wish people would really ask a history when they're admitting people in the emergency <laughs> department. <laughs> that is a good one. That is a good one. Don't that just write true. it because they say it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> The other one I was going to say for five is, you know, if you have a EBV and you get penicillin, that that's not a true allergy. Probably could go in there too. But um, I think four plus that one's a good list. <laughs> well, those, those are really good ones that I want people to know as well. So look, finally, Jason, what do you feel is the most exciting work that's coming down the line in this field, maybe from your own work or from others? What should we be looking out for in the next months and years? I think it's a, a bit broader, but it's about topic. And I think it's multidisciplinary work. And I think it's particularly attacking penicillin allergy and antibiotic allergy from an allergy, immunology, infectious diseases, pharmacy lens. There's not too many topics that can have that sort of conjoint specialty approach in an inpatient ambulatory work. And I think us now scaling, it's all about implementing and scaling all these great penicillin allergy tools and resources now. We've got lots of evidence. It's now about putting it in practice. And I think the most exciting thing for me is using those four craft groups moving forward to really implement penicillin and drug allergy programs uh, into hospitals uh, and make delabeling core business, business as usual. That would be absolutely fantastic. Professor Jason Trubiano, Infectious Disease Consultant and Laboratory Head for the Centre for Antibiotic Allergy and Research at Melbourne University. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. That was just great. Jason is clearly so passionate about his work. I couldn't believe how high the figures were for people losing their allergy to penicillin. 50% of people after five years and 80% after 10 years. That's crazy. Yeah. And so it brings it up to a total of 95% that can be delabeled. Yeah, you'd really just hope that the PenFast tool will become part of everyday clinical practice. I have to say that from my own practice, the thing that really frustrates me is the completely inappropriate labeling as allergic when symptoms are clearly not consistent with an allergy. And I think that that comes down to confidence and education. I think doctors need to be better educated about what an allergy is and what it isn't to help reduce these erroneous labels. And I think they need to be confident enough to stick with this once they know. 
That's right, Lara. And some of it is because people don't realize the consequences of an erroneous penicillin allergy label in terms of costs for the hospital, antibiotic resistance in the community, and most importantly for the patient themselves in terms of ineffective alternative antibiotics and their adverse effects. It's been shown that patients with these labels have higher mortality rates. So like Jason said, a red armband for penicillin allergy is the most dangerous thing you can carry into the hospital. It really is. I really hope that that things start to change in the future. Look, I suppose that's all we have for this episode. Um, And Vianca, as always, do you have any little pearls of wisdom for us this month? (laughs) Well, this month I'm back to jokes. Okay, great. Let's hear it. (laughs) Do you know the problem with antibiotics? It's that no matter how popular they get, they're never going viral. Oh, God. (laughs) Another classic. But also secretly some words of wisdom to be remembered in the spirit of antimicrobial stewardship. (laughs) Okay, look, that's it for this month. If you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, please email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. That's T-E-A. We'd like to thank our guest today, Professor Jason Trubiano, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. This episode of Immunity was sponsored by Farming Group. Thanks so much to you for listening, and we'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.